Welcome to Imagining Melville. I am Dylan, and along with Cassia, we host a podcast called Unburied Books. On our podcast, we read through the NYRB Classics series. If you're unfamiliar with the NYRB Classics, they bring forgotten books back into print, as well as publish new literature and translation. We are very lucky that the uh, series includes a book strongly connected to Moby Dick and its creator, and that is what brings us here today. We'll be discussing the book Melville, a novel by John Giono. Giono, in addition to being a fiction writer, also translated the first French edition of Moby Dick, along with his friend, Lucien Jacques. Uh, this book, which is part biography and also part fantasy, began as a preface to his translation, but perhaps due to its strangeness, it was published as a standalone work in 1941. And to help us probe the mysteries of this text, we are speaking with two of the scholars from the Melville Society Cultural Project. Timothy Marr is professor of American Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And Wynne Kelly is a senior lecturer on US and transatlantic literature at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Welcome, Wynne, and welcome, Tim. Thank you, Dylan and Cassia. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, to start off, Tim and Wynne, you have both dedicated a lot of your lives to the study of Melville and his world. So how did you first encounter Giono's world of Melville, and what impression did this unusual vision of his life leave on you? I'm not sure how I first heard about Giono's Melville, but I bought it and read it with delight uh, and was so intrigued by its creative approach to understanding Melville that I bought uh, five copies and gave them to my colleagues in the Melville Society Cultural Project. That's wonderful. And I'm one of the people he gave me a copy to, and I read it several times um, with a different response every time, which I'll tell you more about. Well, how did this book challenge you as Melvillians, given its strange approach to the story of Melville's life? I'll start because uh, I think my first reading was the one in which I thought, uh, this is, this is uh, we need some fact checking here. Uh, and that was a really a good response to have because it helped me understand some of the other ways you could read the text, which Tim will say more about. Uh, but it's certainly a challenge to anyone who thinks that uh, knowing the, both the Melville corpus, what he wrote, and also what's written about him means um, much more than actually reading what you're reading. Uh, and I had to surrender that and not care whether the dates were right or the um, facts about Melville's life made sense um, in order to appreciate the book, which I now do. And I think there's a structural reason for that. Uh, th there was a team that translated this. Uh, uh, on the word-to-word -word level, there was a, a, an American antique dealer in, uh, in Provence named Joan Smith who just translated it word to word without any context. And then, uh, and, and then uh, Jacques, the other translator, started putting it into French from that basic level. And Jono really wasn't the active translator of this text. He took Melville's words and used it as an inspiration for his own art. Uh, and uh, the remarkable thing here is this is supposed to be an introduction to Moby Dick, but it's his own novel in which he impersonates and inhabits Moby Dick for his own artistic purposes. Yeah, this book is, it's a, a supposed biography, but at the time there was no real biographical knowledge of Melville in French, and it turns into its own 
like autobiography. It's almost closer to Giono's life in some ways than it is to Melville's. So how would you define this kind of text, and does it serve as an introduction to Moby Dick in a way if it was the preface? I think we need to summarize the, the, uh, the events of the book. Um, it's based on Melville's um, actual trip to London in 1849 when he wanted to uh, market his uh, manuscript of, of White Jacket to publishers in London. Uh, and he had some time between then and when he had to go home, uh, time that he spent um, in Paris. But uh, Jono imagines, partly because of this lack of depth that, that, uh, in the uh, historical record that, that Dylan pointed to, he imagines that he goes off into the countryside, leaving behind his fancy city clothes, and uh, meets an amazing woman named Adelina White, uh, and travels with her for a bit, and then they part. Uh, however, he thinks about her for the rest of his life, uh, and um, she appears to be the inspiration for the writing of Moby Dick. And in that way, um, you said it, it, when he returns, um, he starts on Moby Dick. And how does Giono deviate from the historic record of this moment in Melville's life, and what is gained or lost from its departure? Yeah, I think this text, um, this trip to England in 1849 is crucial when one understands how does Melville turn in from the author of his five first books into the creator of Moby Dick. Uh, there's something that happens and this trip is part of that transformation. He's a successful author. He sells his book White Jacket in London and gets the funds for this journey. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, and I think um, What's, what's fascinating here is that Jono gives an alternate genealogy of Melville's inspiration of what exalted his struggling with art in order to create uh, Moby Dick. And it doesn't have to do with Shakespeare and it doesn't have to do with Hawthorne. It has to do with the way that Jono imagines and is influenced by Melville's own creative energies. So more on that point, um, throughout the book, Melville is wrestling with an angel, which is this metaphor that's pulled from a poem he wrote about creating art. Um, and I know that you guys have the poem if you want to read it, and then I'll just pose the question first. Um, how does this poem dramatize Melville's, as well as Giono's, struggle to enter a new phase of his career? Well, thank you for that question. Uh, the book is divided almost evenly in half between two muses. The first one is this art with a capital A, the second, Adelina White, also a capital A. So um, uh, that's significant in itself, that it's not entirely a love story. Uh, it's a story about creation. Uh, but then it's also based on this poem, uh, which, um, goodness, what's the date of the... The poem. It was among poems that he published at different times. Uh, but it's called Art, and I think uh, we need to hear it to understand what's going on in this uh, relationship with the muse that, that Cassia pointed to. So um, I am going to read the first two lines twice because there's a word that might be um, confusing. Uh, it's a, um, a short poem, and it begins like this. In placid hours, well-pleased, we dream of many a brave, unbodied scheme. Uh, and the word I have in mind is brave because it sounds as if it takes courage to make art, but what he's saying is also the, it, embedded in the older use of brave, which is beautiful. 
And so what he's saying is that in placid hours, we're dreaming away of beautiful, unbodied schemes. We're in this place of sort of idleness that precedes creativity. But you need more than that. And that's what he's getting at in the rest of the poem. So I'll start again. In placid hours, well-pleased, we dream of many a brave, unbodied scheme, but form to lend, pulsed life to create. What unlike things must meet and mate? A flame to melt, a wind to freeze, sad patience, joyous energies, humility, yet pride and scorn, instinct and study, love and hate, audacity, reverence. These must mate and fuse with Jacob's mystic heart to wrestle with the angel art. Now, I'll just pause over the last lines because you may need to just remind yourself, if you know it, of the story of Jacob's wrestling with the angel, uh, which appears in Genesis. And um, it, it, angel here is the other word I would want to emphasize, that, that the angel in, in the Old Testament is not a, a pretty being wearing a halo and floating around on wings. In the, um, uh, at least what I remember is that the first word is that Jacob met a man. Uh, and the angel is muscular and tough, and he wounds him in the thigh. So this wrestling is not, uh, the, the angel here is not a guardian. It's, it's not a sort of a um, source of inspiration. It's someone you fight with, and you fight hard, and you come out of it really confused. Um, in the uh, punctuation of that final line, Melville did something that I think of as very dis, dis Dickinsonian. He uses a, 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 a dash. Uh, so I'll, I'll go through it again. And these must mate and fuse with Jacob's mystic heart to wrestle with the angel, dash, art. And the problem in reading that line is that you could either read it as to wrestle with the angel, comma, art. The angel is art, and you wrestle with art. Uh, the other possible reading, and I suppose there are many, is that to wrestle with the angel is art. Art is the wrestling. And I'm dwelling on that because I think that Jono's book uh, plays with that idea endlessly. So this is a book about Melville wrestling uh, with, uh, with, uh, the, with art in order to create and embody and gestate and generate Moby Dick. And he comes to London uh, thinking that his writing days are over, he doesn't want to fight anymore, he wants to be successful and to settle down. Uh, in actuality, he has a wife and his first son at home that he's, uh, that he's eager to get back home to. Uh, and, uh, 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 and yet, he co is compelled, in part because of his genius, in part because he cannot settle, he must struggle, and, uh, and he goes down in the journey to Western England, just like in Moby Dick, when uh, the Pequot is pointed out by, by Yojo, ironically, uh, the, uh, the, god, the god figure of Queequeg uh, that guides the fate of the book. A stable boy tells him to go to this town in the countryside, and he gets on a coupe and heads out there, and that's where he meets Adelina White. So he, 
He gives himself up to fate in that way. Uh, and uh, before he does that, he gets rid of his white hat and his gentleman's clothes and buys secondhand sailor outfit, a Scottish sweater, a pea coat, some uh, elephant skin shoes from an earlier sailor, and inhabits his er early personality as a sailor as he goes into the country. And it's there that fate exposes him to Adelina White, which uh, has a, a revolutionary effect. Uh, uh, and she, in some ways, becomes uh, a representative of the angel he struggles with. Yeah, and there was, when we were talking the other night about this poem, uh, Tim, you had an interesting line in the middle that you were fascinated by, because there's a lot of duality in this poem. Um, and there is a line that sort of breaks that uh, breaks that um, repetition, that's, that style. Uh, do you have anything you want to say about that? Yeah, this is the line, you know, it, it, it says, sad patience, joyous energies, these polar opposites, these paradoxical realities that are in some ways have to be held together to generate uh, 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 art, to be pulled together, the paradox of life. Uh, but then he says humility, and then there's a triple one here. Humility, yet pride and scorn. Now you can see pride and scorn as being the opposite of humility, but I think the scorn is something that's outside of the binary altogether, and I think my interpretation would be that Melville's also uh, saying that uh, even the polarities of paradox cannot hold together uh, is not true uh, to the variability and multiplicity of experience. So he, in some ways, he has a scorn towards the very uh, subject that he's, uh, that, that he's engaging, and that scorn is crucial also to the generation of art. Uh, I would add there's another possible reading of scorn, which I come from, come to from uh, a poem he wrote, a diptych poem, it had two parts, about the, uh, the uh, Portuguese author Camões, uh, and he is um, a, a successful poet in the first stanza, but by the end he's alone and, and aging and suffering from the scorns of the world. So to be a poet is both to feel scorn in, in Tim's reading, but also to endure scorn and with it isolation and loss of identity. Uh, and these are some, some of the things you must struggle with when you struggle with art, seems to me another possible reading. Okay, so moving on to the muse. You mentioned before um, Adelina White. And so while in England, uh, Melville meets and becomes enamored with this married woman, that's Adelina. Um, what is this invented relationship, which is maybe more based on Giono than Melville's uh, couplings, uh, what does this reveal about the role of an ideal reader uh, and the motive for artistic creation? Well, we, we know that um, Giono uh, had a long uh, relationship with a woman named, a married woman in his own town named Blanche Meyer. Uh, they couldn't meet socially, um, so they wrote many, many letters over a 35-year period, which are, I really want to get down there, they are housed in the Beinecke Library at Yale University, a thousand letters. Uh, and you have to imagine what this uh, private world was like for him in thinking about writing. He was writing his novels, he was a prolific no writer of novels, and at the same time writing his beloved. Um, so. Um, 
Oh, wait a minute, where was I going with this? The muse. The muse. He had his own muse. Uh, and um, just as Tim was saying that Melville kind of inhabits um, Jono himself, where he imagines uh, uh, this intimate relationship with, with Jono, he has, with Melville, he has his own relationship with Blanche Meyer that he imposes on or creates a palimpsest for with Adelina. Um, and they're, they're both similar and different. Um, and I think you have to know more about Adelina's life and work to understand the difference. And I, I think Adelina is a, a, a polar difference to Melville in that one, she's a, a woman and Melville, Melville imagines uh, the generativity uh, of women. He said the visible world is that, um, in, in Pierre, he says the visible world is that, uh, uh, is, is that procreates uh, and, uh, and uh, the muse. Uh, the, it's the visible world that, uh, that impregnates the muse he said, this is this art that must meet and mate and fuse and generate that art. And I think what, uh, what, uh, Adela what Adeline brings to the picture here is that she is married. Uh, uh, Melville, the character in Jono's novel, um, has a, uh, an image of her as someone who's, who suffered and perhaps married the wrong person. She's married to a lawyer and has a, a son at home, yet her job and her mission uh, and her purpose is as a smuggler of contraband wheat to Irish nationalists, in which she's at constant risk. And it's, in some ways, uh, uh, it's her boldness uh, in, uh, in dedicating herself to those, uh, uh, those who are suffering from her own country uh, that I think is part of the polar contrast that's delivered to Melville here. When, so if one asks, what does this relationship that Melville have with Adeline, how does it lead to Moby Dick? It provides that generativity with a, a, a woman who's connected to suffering in her own life and addressing suffering uh, with her own actions. And that itself impregnates Melville with, uh, with a greater mission it causes him to continue struggling and fighting with the angel in an even greater uh, struggle that produces Moby Dick once he returns. And just as the novel Moby Dick has this figure of a mysterious white, I mean whale, but not Adelina White, but uh, it's also just to continue what Tim is saying about suffering, brings him in contact with the working sailors. So, so Moby Dick travels back and forth between these worlds, as Jonah do, does between the angel art and Adelina as someone who is both uh, beautiful but also brave in her um, connection with this uh, uh, socio-political um, movement. Uh, and Jonah imagines that, that Melville has to incorporate that into his own novel. Now, one could argue that his sailors are not as individualized as Adelina White, that they are um, something of a placeholder for the working class, and yet um, most uh, uh, maritime novels before then, maybe up until Dana's two years of the, before the mast, did not really represent sailors as having the kinds of suffering that he uh, uh, points to in Moby Dick. So it's, it's really an open question, but a very uh, powerful one, it seems to me. And to bring it a little bit back more into the reality of Melville's life, I was reminded we were in the gift shop just before we started looking at some of the copies they had of Moby Dick and uh, it's dedicated 
um, there is a dedication to Nathaniel Hawthorne. And later in the book of Giono's book, uh, Melville does return to Massachusetts and Giono depicts this friendly meeting between Melville and Hawthorne. Um, though Giono portrays Melville as still pining, even up to his death for Adelina's approval, and maybe who he would have written the dedication to in Giono's world. Um, some might see Hawthorne as Melville's ideal reader, in a way. How do you read Giono's representation of sexuality, 80 years on since uh, his publication? Well, there's a transposition. Uh, the inspiration in Giono's Melville is, Adel is Adelina White, but it in some ways transposes the kind of energy that critics have also uh, in some ways romanticized between Melville and Hawthorne, that it is that relationship, it is their intimacy, it's the connection of genius, the shock of recognition of two minds, understanding the complexity of the struggle with darkness. Uh, the Hawthorne in this story is someone who merely listens to Melville and encourages him, but it's Adelina that becomes the spirit behind it. We're back to the 1949 uh, question of Melville being exposed to, uh, to as a great author in England, as a larger world tradition of writers in English, to Shakespeare, uh, to Hawthorne, imagining himself, and what, it, what is it that generates that energy uh, that creates the art of Moby Dick? Adelina White uh, is, that, uh, is that force here, but she becomes, I think, in some ways, the energies that another romance in Melville studies that sees Hawthorne as playing that role is, is, uh, is carried out. Who's to say uh, uh, um, uh, uh, whether, whether the one with Adelina White, whether the one with Hawthorne is imagined uh, in a way, although there is the intimacy, intimate letters between them. In this case, it's, it's quite interesting to look at their, their engagement, because what Melville does, this is a description of their engagement in, uh, in the woods. They're riding on this uh, carriage together, knee to knee, and uh, he's pointing out the uh, realities of nature, and in some ways, this is how, it's very Melvillian. Melville is the he. He rolled up the sky from one edge to the other as though it were made out of colored silk. And for a brief moment, there was no more sky. And then after an interval of four hoofbeats at a gallop, he rolled the sky open again. But now it had turned into a huge skin, tightly enclosing Earth's arteries and veins. And it says that she had that indentation of the sky in her hands and felt the chasms in the sky grow deeper in her hand. She saw them right before her eyes, the world wasn't the same before anymore, wasn't the same anymore. She knew that she was very small, that the sky was infinite, but now it was she who was infinite, and the sky was very small. It's giving Melville enormous power to open up uh, her, her, own, her own world, in some ways the way our, our world is open when we read Moby Dick. In some ways, the length of their encounter is like our engagement with Moby Dick. But he's also explaining and appropriating his own experience and imposing it on her, it is also important what he gets from her that generates his art. Uh, I'm, I'm so struck by this discussion and also by your question. I think we evaded before the, the, your idea about the, the, the ideal reader. And I wanted to get back to that because it seems to me that if, if you have a muse uh, who engenders the work in the model that, that Tim just described, 
uh, that's a very active role, but the ideal reader is, uh, well, it's hard to be both a muse and, an, and a reader. You're both generating and receiving the artist's work. Um, so even embedded in your question is, is a really interesting um, structural relationship between the two. Um, but you also went on to talk about gender. And um, the muse as a woman is a traditional trope, but uh, at least in 20th century, and this is post-Geonocriticism, the ideal reader for Melville has often been imagined as Hawthorne. Uh, and that relationship as one that is gendered as um, masculine and uh, homosexual. However, Adelina plays both roles, and the problem is that Jonah can't quite um, step outside of some of the traditional uh, gender expectations of his time, so Adelina is both active as inspiration um, and later as the, the one reader he wants to have and waits all his life to hear from, but also passive as in the passage with a Tim Red, where Melville is creating this gorgeous poetry for her, and she simply sits and listens. Jono corrects that, however, later in the novel, when it appears that Adelina has not just been listening, but making her plans, and um, she has determined to leave him and go continue and complete her mission. So the last word in the relationship is hers, and it is farewell. Um, and it also comes at a moment when, when Melville, the character Melville now, um, stops the sort of um, uh, ecstatic language, the poetic language he's been using, and he describes the, the angel art uh, very simply um, and brutally, I think, as a prison guard. He knows he's going back to a world in which he won't have someone like Adelina White to inspire him, and that producing the novel is going to be um, a kind of... Uh, um, labor that he, without her he will find um, in, incredibly onerous. So the ideal reader um, merged with Muse is itself a problem. And then when you complicate the gender expectations of that, I think you have layers of meaning that, that I did not see the first time I read this book and, and now find it fascinating. Thank you for that question. And, and jo, uh, Jono imagines Melville's life after Moby Dick and, and the failure of that text as one of total silence. His novel, his introduction to Moby Dick, ends with Melville on his deathbed asking if there's a letter from Adelina White because it's absolutely essential that she respond to his creation because she was the matrix of it within him. Uh, and I say, as far as how that relates to an implied reader, I think it shows that Melville in his life did not have the readers that are embodied here in this reading of Moby Dick where we as a collective body uh, are, are readers of Moby Dick eating it up, fully engaged with the dimensions of his creation. Melville suffered, uh, suffered a, a life in which there weren't that many readers who got what he was doing and that need for Adelina White I think is, uh, is his need for some response. And we like to see that response in Hawthorne, who did read Moby Dick, to which Moby Dick was dedicated. But I think the silence uh, of Adelina White is also uh, the tragedy of his career and also the way that it generated the art that matters so much to us today.
And then in another historical irony, which I doubt that Jonah knew about because as, as Tim has said, he had inadequate um, biographical information, Melville's last work, uh, not published until 1924, sometime after his death, was Billy Budd, in which there's a scene very similar to the one um, that Jono imagines, the death of the hero. Well, in Billy Budd, it's the death of Captain Veer. Uh, in Jono's work, Melville dies, as Tim described, waiting for uh, a word from Adelina White. He's attended by a nurse who doesn't understand what he's looking for. Uh, and so Jonah imagines the last person in his life as being not an ideal reader at all, totally unable to capture or, or understand what Captain, well, sorry, what, what Melville's going through in not having that, that other person in his life. Melville without knowing Jono, Jono without knowing Melville, uh, Melville writes the ending to Billy Budd, uh, one of the endings, in which Captain Veer dies, attended by um, a, a, another a nurse, uh, saying the words, Billy Budd, Billy Budd. And the narrator says that the, the attendant, of course, had no way of knowing why Veer was saying those words at the end. And it's because Veer loved Billy Budd, Veer regretted being responsible for his death, Veer never got the status in his life that he could have wished for, a, a wish he might have, Melville might have shared with him. So whereas Jono imagines Melville's death um, in these terms, uh, in Billy Budd, Melville was in a, in a sense projecting and imagining his own death in very similar terms. So this is a way in which Jono has actually through the means that we speak of as not factual, not grounded in research or biographical knowledge, come to something very important about Melville that we might not have seen without this book. Exactly, um, and I feel like you've already sort of touched upon this, um, but what does it mean, I, I think especially in the context of this Moby Dick marathon where we have different readers stepping into Melville's language and making it their own, um, every five minutes or whatnot. Um, what does it mean for Giono to put himself in Melville's shoes to explore his life as a way of understanding his own and what do we learn about Melville in the process and what like a universal kind of body of work he's created? I think it's interesting right at the beginning the way he described, uh, the way that Giono describes his relationship with the book Moby Dick. He calls it his foreign companion. He never came to the United States. He wasn't really that uh, fluent in, in English. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, this is how he describes it. I took it with me regularly on my hikes across the hills. As soon as I entered those vast wave-like but motionless solitudes, I'd sit down under a pine and lean against its trunk. All I needed to do was pull out this book, which was already flapping in the wind, to sense the manifold life of the seas swell up below and all around me. Countless times I felt the rigging hiss over my head and the earth heave under my feet like the deck of a whaler and the trunk of the pine groan and sway against my back like a mast heavy with wind-filled sails. This language, I think he's borrowing the power of the language from Moby Dick. Uh, but like the mountain, the torrent, or the sea, one of his sentences rolls, lifts, and falls in complete mystery. It transports you. It drowns you. And he talks about their translation as persisting together, um, this mutual dream of translation, trying to reproduce its depths, its chasms, its abysses, and its summits 
its rock slides, its forests, its darkened valleys, its precipices, and the heavy mortar compounded from it all. And you can see that uh, Jono has a land metaphor, uh, and that, uh, and that uh, he can't write the sea, although he later writes a novel called Fragment d'un Paradis, which is a five-month journey on a whaler in which he inhabits Melville's trip in a way that he never did again, uh, he never did himself. But he inhabits this language, and it, it actually propagates his own art. Uh, uh, that Melville is his muse, that he puts on Melville. And that's, I think, a different kind of reader. It's not the kind of introduction that we would have to Moby Dick that's scholarly. It's a reader who, uh, who uh, perhaps unfairly appropriates Melville to, uh, yes, unfairly appropriates Melville for his own purposes, but, but is someone who's open to that intersubjectivity uh, in a way that fuses, and I think of the fuse in the, in the poem art as the fusion of nuclear energy, of creating an enormous whirlwind of power, which is this fighting with the angel uh, that, uh, that an artist cannot not do, uh, that is compelled to do. Uh, in, in some ways in scorn uh, to the requirements uh, of the world uh, that wants you to write in a certain way and sell so many books, which is what Melville came to London to do, but, uh, but escaped from the prison of the city into this countryside, not, into the, not going to the continent, but into the countryside. And Jono has him encounter, encounter this woman in which this energy where they're inseparable for the rest of their lives even though they're only together for a couple days. I would just add briefly what I learned from reading this book, which was that Jono read it while he was imprisoned um, as a pacifist during World War I. Um, and he was considered, actually, wait, was the prison time? World War II. I think Sorry. it was two. Yeah, and uh, he was, he was uh, imprisoned because he didn't seem to be um, enough of an anti-Nazi. Um, so while he was in prison, he read the book and it gave him this, this um, experience that, that we've just heard about. Um, so the inhabiting of Melville was something that freed him uh, mentally and, and uh, psychologically during a really difficult time. I'll just say that, um, uh, that their, their process of translation, they actually take from Moby Dick. Uh, he said that Melville himself was handing us the principles that would guide our work. They're working collaboratively. There are in some enterprises, he says, there are some enterprises in which a carefully, careful disorderly, disorderliness is the true method. And this is the disorderliness of his engagement uh, with Melville, but it's, uh, it's a very, it's a very uh, fertile sharing. Uh, and you know, you wonder, uh, what does it mean to inhabit an author that way? Is that, in an, is that in an ideal reader? Do you want someone who throws themselves into trying to figure out the, the genesis of the urge and the struggle with the gods that a genius is, is undergoing when they produce art? Or, or is, that, uh, is, that, is that like Melville's, what Hawthorne thought of Melville, that you're coming too close to another and that you're transgressing on their, on their individuality? Just in line with what you said about Hawthorne, um, a rather ironic line in the book is that, that Melville starts to tell Hawthorne about his experience in Europe uh, and what it meant to him to write the book. And Hawthorne says, I think you're writing a beautiful book. Um, so he's obviously not the ideal reader. That's all he can come up with. 
<laughs> and we know that there was a lot more than that, but um, uh, th this is what dif differentiates the world's reading of the book from the one you're describing. Absolutely. Um, so we want to try to have a few minutes to turn over some questions to the audience. We can probably take a couple. Um, yeah? This is perhaps one permutation of, as your discussion has proven, a perennial question. But over the course of this Moby Dick marathon, uh, engaging with the scholarship surrounding Melville's work has also had created a tremendous potential for meaning in the readership present today, uh, both through the lens of works that look backward with uh, an appropriative lens, such as Melville, a novel, but also uh, works of scholarly analysis, like your own studies, like this podcast, and I think you were like alluding to C.L.R. James when it comes to looking at the men as a working class. And in, you've described uh, Giono's own work in creating Melville, a novel, as representative of wrestling with the angel art. But I was wondering if you would be interested in describing in like a you know descriptive, not proscriptive way your own relationship to the muse Cleo and uh, how you go about creating literary historical analysis and its meaning for posterity. Well, I think it goes back to saying that how do you understand Melville? How, do word, how does the experience that he expresses in words get communicated intersubjectivity intersubjectively into us as readers so that we are connected to Melville and are informed by his art so that we actually get the energy of, uh, of being created by its, uh, by its power. Uh, uh, I, think, uh, I think in some ways Jono is on to something as being a creative reader is that we do need, and Melville teaches us how to read his own creation and, and taught Jono how, how to do that. Uh, uh, that I, I think we do need to in, inhabit Melville in order to allow him to teach us what his art uh, has expressed. Uh, and without that encounter, we're what he called the superficial skimmer of pages who doesn't, uh, doesn't engage in the depths. And, and in some ways, Melville has to be our own muse if we want his art uh, to, to generate newness, newness within our own experience. I had a, a teacher in um, uh, graduate school who said, never, never ignore the surfaces for the mere depths. Uh, just to counter your, your uh, statement a little bit, he, f he felt that there was as much you could do on the surface as there was in the depths. Uh, and uh, I, I think that another way to be an ideal reader of Melville is to respect um, the, uh, the limits of what scholars can do. Uh, so I've always found myself kind of nibbling around the edges uh, and picking up things that I thought others might have missed. So maybe that makes me a glorified writer of footnotes. Uh, but I, I, um, I think it might be impossible to inhabit Melville. I'm not sure. I haven't tried. Um, but in any case, there is so much to be gained from listening in on people reading here, listening in on other people's conversations, and... Um, uh, finding something in it. Um, so uh, I, I, I'm, I'm also, for another anecdote, reminded of a visit I took to Sweden um, when I was quite young, and I was at a table of journalists. And this, this is another f form of reading. 
uh, I announced that I was doing my dissertation on Melville, and they said, why are you writing on an author of children's books? Because in their mind, American literature considered of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, a children's book, um, Mark, Twain, other, Mark Twain's other books, um, uh, Old Man in the Sea, a children's book. Right? Um, so this is about a, an adventure after going after a whale. I, I mean, I, won't, I will stop there. But I'm just going to say, there are a lot of other <laughs> ideal readers. And I actually took it to heart and thought, um, yeah, he's a writer of boys' books. <laughs> Um, like Cooper, and what do I do with that as a as a very you know st strongly emerging feminist? Yeah, I would just say you know we're involved in translation here as well. Moby Dick becomes French through through Giono's uh, birthing of that text in another language, and it is the canonical, still the canonical French translation of Moby Dick. And one of the differences from the others is that it's not the cachalot blanc, it's the baleine blanche, that it's a feminized whale in, uh, in, Jono's, uh, in, in Jono's translation. Um, and in some ways, it's, uh, it's ironic because this book, published in French in 1941, uh, is not published in English until this version a few years ago. So uh, one of the transpositions is across the Atlantic, across languages, and the way that Moby Dick becomes global through these transactions. But I'll just mention another because he's writing, uh, this is the politics of 1941, uh, not a, a, a dark time in French history uh, that this is published. And, uh, uh, and Jonah was uh, fought at Verdun and lost many of his mates and that's why he became a pacifist. And in imagining Melville back in 1849, right after another revolutionary period of hope uh, there is, a, uh, and looking at Amer an American Democrat, uh, uh, Melville, the trip on the, on the uh, stagecoach is Whitmanian. They notice all these workers out there carrying out their labors. Um, that there is this, uh, there is this uh, crossing, transhistorical crossing of time and space in which American democracy is something that's usable for Jono uh, as he writes what he calls his prison book. Uh, Melville, in some ways, li uh, liberates him from that. And I'll just say, to answer, answer Sophonisba's question, that, um, that uh, when, you when you read Melville, one of the things I love about Melville is he lived in and through his writing. That was his way of being. So when we encounter his words, we do have an inter intersubjective connection with someone who's no longer living. Uh, and that kind of intimacy, I will say that that's what I get from Melville, that's what I read him, that there is an intimacy uh, with someone who lived at a different time, who lived in such an intensely present and creative way that I can be charged by that energies when I read it. Uh, and uh, so I think these unlike things that meet and made as a 19th century dead white male can propagate uh, all kinds of different readers today uh, with, uh, with a book that uh, Jono called a sanctuary book in which humanity can harbor its despair and its desire to persist in spite of the gods. Absolutely. Um, I think we can take up to two more if there's any more questions. But this is just as good a place to stop as any. Oh, you have one? Just? 
maybe talk a little bit more about Jono's politics. I mean, in the sense, we know what CLR James's politics are. You know, was he like an Ezra Pound character in terms of, you mentioned something about, I don't know anything about him, so I'm, I'm just curious what his politics were. It's a hard thing because I'm not a Jonah expert, but in half of his, only half of his works, um, 32 works have been translated into English. He's a, he's, a, he's a French writer. But I gather that at this moment, this book, um, uh, Pour Saluer Melville, to greet or to commend Melville, uh, it's not Melville a novel. I like to, it's, he's commending Melville. He's celebrating Melville in this. That it itself is generating a shift in his own writing from a more romantic notion of pastoral landscape in his earlier fiction to a character-driven uh, 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 series of novels in which he's engaging uh, with with personality, with people, with character. Uh, so the, uh, Melville himself, Melville ushers a shift into Jono's own art, but he was uh, he was very uh, very much an egalitarian and saw Melville as as someone who could teach him that democracy uh, as as a fresh American voice. And I, I think it's crucial in looking at uh, Adelina White as a smuggler, as an activist, as someone who suffers and helps the suffering. Melville was sympathetic to that, but did it through his literary imagination. And I think it's the embodiment in this text of Adelina's mission in carrying that out and the risk that she took uh, of an honest soul putting themselves out there, uh, uh, out of their own suffering to help others. Um, that kind of, uh, I think that's what Jono sees as the kind of spirit in, term, in terms of Melville's art that fuses. Uh, we see it perhaps in the ballast of the shipping uh, uh, industry and, and all the materiality of being aboard the Pequod. But I think in Jono's, it's this encounter uh, with someone who's an activist in a way that an artist isn't that generates a Moby Dick that can have more of an impact because it's fuller and it's open, open to that suffering. When you mentioned that Adelina White was uh, supporting the Irish nationalist movement in 1849 during the famine years, it, you immediately shifted me to William Butler Yeats and his relationship with Maud Gunn, who was a nationalist with whom he was in love, but she did not reciprocate. And Adelina White apparently didn't reciprocate to, to Melville. What is the importance of that dynamic where there is a non-reciprocating you know, investment by one person in the muse where the muse, other than being the muse, doesn't reciprocate directly? There's just one plot point here, which is that uh, Adelina does write back to the character Melville in the early years, but then while he's writing the book, but then she probably dies, and that's left uh, open. So, you know, Melville doesn't know that. So that's one reason for not reciprocating. But I think you're absolutely right that Adelina um, does not seem to express the same um, uh, notion of of the relationship that, that the character Melville does. He seems to be desperate to, to um, uh, relate to her. And in fact, there's a kind of stretch at the beginning and when they're in the, the end together, and he's a kind of comic bumbling. Uh, he says, oh, I can't be in the same room with her. I won't be able to talk to her. Um, so, and she seems much more composed and you know, sort of ready for anything. Uh, but it is her, her, um, 
her work with the, uh, the laborers that concerns her the most uh, and to which she um, makes the greatest. I think the book suggests that she makes a greater sacrifice for her work than Melville does for his. So your comment about the whale being translated slightly differently in the other version uh, made me think of, so Dracula that was translated into Swedish and now has been translated back, so there's lots of interesting things about the differences in the text. So it made me wonder, has, has the French text been retranslated back into English? And are there interesting differences in it? And you said, particularly because it, you said that his, his, uh, his knowledge of English was not that great. I just thought that would might be really interesting. And not reading French, I won't know <laughs> what's in the French version unless somebody translates it back. I don't know a full answer to that, but I, I do know that they changed the language. Some of the longer sentences are made shorter. Some of the shorter sentences are connected. Um, and uh, when it was retranslated in 2006 by, an by another writer, they pointed out the errors uh, and the, uh, uh, to that translation. Nevertheless, though, this book, because of the artistic way that it became a recreation of Melville's text from the substrate of those words being translated from English into French words that were then recreated into the art, which in some ways is is Giono's method here, did manage to sort of embody the energies, and you heard it in his language, the energies of Melville's work. Uh, and uh, I'm surprised that it hasn't been uh, uh, replaced by, by a more accurate text. There's some accuracy here to the emotional and creative response to Melville as an artist that's still very, very active and has had an enormous influence on French readers of Melville, and there's been French theorists who have made uh, enormous contributions to understanding Melville in, in new ways as this text becomes a global text, as you mentioned. And I wanted to bring up something, I think you touched on it briefly, uh, when we talk about translation there. The, tit the original title of this in French, and excuse my French because I'm not probably going to be able to pronounce it very well, is Pois Salor Melville, which has many different interpretations of what that could mean. Um, what, what do you think about the translation of it to just being Melville a novel instead of something maybe more directly similar? We've been talking this weekend a lot about whether Moby Dick is a novel or not. Um, so one thing it draws attention to is what is Moby Dick, and then it's not just it's not Moby Dick the novel, it's Melville the novel. Uh, and I think it was intended to show that this, what started as a preface to the translation turned into a, a kind of fantastic journey meaning a, a journey in, in fantasy, uh, that um, explores Melville's life and work, but uh, uh, is, is a bit um, uh, cut off from the way we think of Melville. But we've been discussing Pour Salouet Melville, which is toward or to um, salute, that's the closest um, cognate, uh, to celebrate, to toast, to admire, um, many other possible meanings, which get back at what your question about what is it to read Melville? What is the ideal reader? Do you celebrate Melville? Do you inhabit Melville? Do you love Melville? Do you keep your distance from Melville? Um, uh, the Salouet is, is ambiguous enough that we think it should remain as the title. I was thinking of the, the, uh, the other translation of to commend. I love the word commend because it does hold together 
and create the kind of uh, relationship, intersubjective artistic relationship that allows some, uh, that allows for this uh, transposition of, of, of creativity through art. Uh, and, and there is an honoring and a celebrating, but a, a commending. What, what do you have? In token of, uh, a token of Melville. Uh, although, although I think Jonah, uh, Jonah's token is, uh, is, a, is a very romanticized and embodied and full, uh, a full inhabitation. Just like Melville puts on the clothes of other sailors. Uh, you know, when Melville was in London, uh, he wore this green coat that he said played a devil with his reputation. He said that he got stares uh, uh, it w must have been an American coat that was completely out of fashion. He didn't want to spend money buying, uh, buying a gentleman's coat, and he was pointed, pointed, pointed out that way. Uh, um, uh, and I think, uh, I think in putting on these sailor's clothes, Adelina White first thinks that he's a constable because she's, he's gone on the same journey, and he's noticed his, uh, his attention to her, and he, he thinks she's about ready to be exposed by him as a, as a constable. Uh, and um, uh, uh, yeah, so um, I think Jono, though, is putting on Melville uh, uh, and, uh, and, and inhabiting, I, I think there is an inhabitation that takes place. That's transgressive. Um, but that's also a way of commending, commending um, uh, another author. Yes, thank you so much for everyone for coming out. Um, and thank you to Tim and Wynn for their time. This was an excellent discussion. I want to say that there are two copies of Melville by John Giono in the, in the gift shop right now. So... Run. <laughs> Go. <laughs> I want to thank Dylan and, and Cassia for, one, their, uh, their commitment to bringing these unburied books up from the depths and, uh, and allowing uh, audiences uh, uh, to discuss them and to, uh, and to uh, inhabit them, um, but also for the, uh, for the creative mode here. This is the first time that they've had two, uh, uh, two people together on a podcast also the first time that it's been live. So that kind of uh, creative experimentation, I think, is very much in the spirit of the book we just engaged together. Thank you so much. Go get that book. <laughs>